want to read three verses from Psalm 51 as we begin our meditation in the Word of God. You'll notice that these three particular verses all bring the same truths together. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Let's ask once again for God's blessing. Our Father, this is indeed your word, the word of the living God, which you, through the pen of your servant David, have given to your church a gift of great value for our instruction, our correction, for training in righteousness. Our God, please, for the sake of your glory and the good of your people, bless the word of God to us this evening. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. I have a, a routine of personal devotions, and I, I try to break up my reading of my Old and New Testament scriptures strategically so that I am exposing myself to all of the Word of God. And in recent days, I have been returning back to the Psalms, and uh, my recent Old Testament reading brought me to Psalm. 51. And as I was meditating on this song, I was impressed with the wonderful truths God has included here. I was telling Pastor Tate that there was a time when I was afraid to preach on Psalm 51. That might seem a strange thing to say, but it's a very deep psalm, a psalm of rich believing experience. And I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to mess it up. I wanted to represent it truly, clearly, fully, as best as I can as God's servant. So we're going to look today at these three verses in particular. We'll take an overview of the psalm, but it's these three verses in particular I'm concerned with because this is David's plea. I know that the... Uh, the uh, Announcement. She says, David's prayer for grace, very true. But specifically, David's plea for cleansing, because that's what David is asking for. And these particular verses, grace over all, yes. Forgiveness, yes. But I'm specifically interested in trying to open up David's plea, his begging for cleansing. Let me start with some general reminders. So you, it's, not, it's not hard. You, you're familiar with the history of David, particularly the occasion of the writing of this psalm. David was a man who had known many years of God's favor prior to this one famous sin. You might, you might think that, uh, it, I, I wouldn't blame you if you said, well, this is David's really one great sin. It, it is, but there are other sins in David's life, but they do not loom as large, and they do not result in the same intensity of prayer as this particular sin. And for many years prior to this, David had known God's favor and grace. Must have been days, uh, many days of celebration for David. You think of the death of the giant, the champion of the Philistines, Goliath. And
And David, no doubt, entered in with unusual joy when he heard the words, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. There was the, the death of the giant, the conquest of the Philistines. There was the coronation of David as king when all Israel acknowledged that this is God's anointed days of celebration. There was the entry of the ark into Jerusalem when David danced with all his might. There was the covenant announced to him when God told him, you want to build me a house? I'll tell you what, I'm going to build you a house to David. What a promise from God that both elevated and humbled David. But would that the story ended there in one sense, in one sense, would that it ended there. But I propose to you that we should be thankful that the story did not end there. It's a very odd thing to say, but very true. David sadly allowed his privileges to dull his moral sense, as so often happens. Our privileges must be carefully guarded or we will fall into moral laxness. The heart becomes hard. Truth no longer penetrates easily into the soul. And David, David became hard-hearted. He ignored his duties. He should have been on the field of battle with his army, but he stayed in Jerusalem and, and enjoyed a time of ease. He ignored his duties. He presumed to commit gross sin and cover it. He committed adultery with his neighbor's wife. God had said, God says, he who goes into his neighbor's house, will, neighbor's wife will not go unpunished. And David found it. David found it so. When God exposed David's sin, he tried to cover it. And God exposed David's sin by making Bathsheba pregnant with David's child while her husband was on the battlefield. He went to the length of murder and marriage. But God loved David. You have to understand God did love David. And because he loved David, he blew the cover of David's sin. Nathan confronted it. David confessed the evil and he received God's declaration of forgiveness. Remember, Nathan says, as soon as David says, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan says the Lord has taken away your sin. Funny though, David didn't trip lightly home. David didn't skip home. David didn't say, oh, no, I'm, I'm free, I'm forgiven. He didn't. He penned this very useful psalm. This was one of the psalms written on the occasion of David's sins. When God brought David to repentance, David was not concerned about his outward position as a king. He wasn't concerned about his reputation anymore. He wasn't concerned who knew, who found out, how far it went. And it went to the nation. It went to everyone. It went to David's enemies. It went to the man who later threw stones at David. Go out, you men of bloodshed. But David was not concerned about the perception of others. He wasn't concerned about the officers of the army. He wasn't worried about Nathan anymore. He wasn't worried about Zadok the priest. He was concerned with his relationship with God and the state of his soul. That's what we have in Psalm 51. There are four kinds of petitions in Psalm 51. There were the pleas for forgiveness, cleansing, restoration. That's the first kind of petition that David makes. There was a sense of guilt awakened, perhaps a guilt deeper than David had ever known. 
You see it in those first two verses. As David pleads with God, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7 again, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. He's seeking forgiveness, cleansing, restoration. This is not a shallow immature believer praying these prayers. He's not confessing sin because he uh, he can't escape it. This is a mature believer wrestling with God for blessing. This is spirit-wrought conviction. So that's the the first kind of petition in this psalm. Plead, please, for forgiveness cleansing, restoration, please for the safekeeping of his soul. Do not, verse 11, cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. A sermon in itself. They were pleased for a restoration of spiritual equilibrium and liveliness in his soul. David now perceives just how far gone his sin has taken it. And sadly, the truth is, brethren, that when we commit our sins, we just are not aware of how far sin will take us. But David found how far he was. And so he prays for spiritual equilibrium and liveliness in his soul, verses 10 and 12. And then finally... One of the keynotes of Psalm 51 is his prayers for God's blessing on others. The true depth of David's repentance expressed itself in his concern for others and their spiritual needs as well. Well, these are joined to various arguments which David uses in his wrestling with God in his seeking to obtain from God blessing. Among the various gems in this psalm, and it's very rich, that's one of the things that makes me fearful about preaching Psalm 51. How do you do justice to a psalm like this? How do you do justice to the spiritual experience of a man so deep, so rich, powerful, so glorious, the fruit of God's grace to David? Well, among these gems is David's pleas for cleansing. We need God's grace to teach us from this portion. As you consider the things that we're looking at this evening, you, you may expect two things for yourself. When I pray for me, Prayed for myself a number of times this afternoon. I prayed for you that you would receive certain things from this particular portion. You may expect to feel the sting of your sins. You know, that's what the Bible says ought to be happening when the word of God is preached. That there should be conviction. There should be the sting of sin felt. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But also the joy of God's grace. Because we ought to end this evening with some degree of holy rejoicing that God is the God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Who is a God like you? Well, as we delve into the David's pleas, that's the the plural of a plea, multiple requests. Uh, Our our first point is the wide relevance of this psalm. The wide relevance of this psalm. There's a way of reading this psalm that is very much detached. And I, I don't want to help you detach yourself 
from the psalm. I want to help you attach yourself to the psalm. And there is a wide relevance to this psalm. See, the, one of the dangers is we say, well, that's David, you know. That's a very unique situation. We're not like David. But there's a wide relevance to this psalm. That's why we're considering it as the very word of God. It's for many kinds of religious people. And I say that, I use that phrase religious people in the best sense possible. For the very best Christians, see. It's for many kinds of religious people. Of course, it's, it's for sinners. It's for people who have gone astray, yes. But it's also for good Christians, if I can put it that way. This is not just a psalm for one man. It is explicitly uh, intended for public worship. This is, a, this is a, a rich thing for us, dear brethren. Uh, I, I want to make the point that the little notes at the top of the psalm are inspired. They're part of the Hebrew text. When it says a psalm for the choir director, for a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, that's inspired scripture. Like we sometimes say here, this is the word of God. That's the word of God. That's the scripture which the Holy Spirit inspired David to, to pen. There are sometimes when you read a heading over a psalm and it might say, a psalm of rejoicing in God's goodness or something. That, that's written not by the Hebrew, that's written by translators, compilers. But this, when it says a psalm of Asaph, when it says for the choir director, that's inspired scripture. That's telling us the use of the psalm or the occasion of the psalm. And here it says for the choir director. And what that means, dear brethren, is that is for public worship to be owned by all the people of God. Whenever you see for the choir director, yes, I know the Levites were trained, they were trained Levites who sang. Maybe sometimes they sang and the people just listened. But the people needed to enter in by faith to what the Levites were singing. It was an act of public worship for the corporate people of God. But what this means is David's Psalm 51, including the pleas for cleansing or to, to filter into the hearts and minds of the people of God. It was for all kinds of religious people, the best and the worst. Also, uh, it was intended that others would benefit. I've already pointed that out, but you see that in verse 13 of this psalm. David says, when you do for me all these things I'm begging you for, O God, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. He says, I'm not so unique that others who sin cannot learn from my experience and my dealings with God. David expects that. And then when we add to this, the exhortations of our scriptures and the hymns that we sing, it becomes more obvious how fitting this psalm is for you and me. You remember the words of Paul to the needy Corinthians in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Chapter 10, verse 12, Paul says, Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. So you say, well, I'm a good Christian. I work hard at keeping out of trouble. I keep my nose clean. Thanks be to God. You don't do it on your own. That's for sure. But Paul says, you think you stand? Watch out. Take heed lest you fall which is followed by a promise of divine help because there's no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. And that can apply to David also. What David went through was 
common to man. But God is faithful. And God will protect his people. That doesn't mean they won't sin. That's why verse 12 precedes verse 13. You have uh, the words of the Apostle John in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, we are not perfectionists. We are not perfectionists. We don't think that we can arrive at perfect holiness on this side of heaven. And that is one of the reasons why this psalm is for us. It's for us, dear brethren. We need this. We need this. We need to absorb it and to learn from it. Again, just as I wrap up this particular point, it's for many kinds of religious people. Um, think of the hymns that we uh, sang that remind us of our vulnerability. We sang one of them I, as I was uh, singing the hymn. Um, let's see if I can remember which one. I guess maybe Jesus, what a friend for sinners. God be merciful to me. You see? That's a hymn that reminds me of my vulnerability and my sinfulness. How about that hymn that starts out, Christian, seek not yet repose. Cast thy dreams of ease away. Thou art in the midst of foes. Watch and pray. The hymn, hymn writer says, watch as if on that alone hung the issue of the day. Pray that help may be sent down. Watch and pray. Reminds us of our vulnerability. One of the hymns that my daughter played, because I put it in her playlist, Weary of Earth and Laden with My Sin, I look at heaven and long to enter in, but there no evil thing may find a home. And yet I hear a voice that bids me come. This is a song for many Kinds of people. That's why it has a wide relevance. And this is for many kinds of sins. This is for many kinds of sins. David, as you know, penned this psalm as part of his repentance for very serious sins. We've already listed some of them. The adultery. The look. The straight look. And presumption. David presumed upon the mercy and grace of God. He thought that he would be able to avoid detection. He was the most powerful man in Israel. And he presumed. That's a sin, a great sin. Now it would be easy for you to think that you do not and will not need such an act of repentance at Psalm 51. Now you might not say it that way. You might not say, oh no, I'll never have to pray Psalm 51 about my sins. That's presumption. You may have a history of resistance to sin, a history of godly living. I used to, I had particular sins that I struggled with. I used to keep a little calendar and put little marks on the days when I sinned in the, in the way I was fighting and uh, when I didn't sin, and I could go many, many days, many weeks, many months without particular sin. But it only takes a moment to overturn long periods of success in fighting against sin to fall into sin. So you may have a history. Let me put it to you this way. So did David. So did Solomon. Who can imagine that that man, who as a young man, offered many, many sacrifices to God, and God said, ask what you want. And that man, 
That man ended up in gross idolatry. Peter had a long history. Beware. Because Jesus called his generation a wicked and adulterous generation. Very interesting description. Our generation is just such a generation. We need to, we need to be self-suspicious. We need to guard ourselves. I was thinking, as I was thinking about this, of that passage that Paul writes to in 1 Thessalonians 4. Particularly verse 2 and following. Paul says to the Thessalonian Christians, a church which he evidently loves and has a lot of confidence in, but he says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as he also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. You see how bluntly, how plainly Paul speaks to his dear Christian brethren in Thessalonica. And you may tell yourself, that you have a fine church. I agree. You may tell yourself that you have a good pastor. I agree. You may tell yourself that you have dear brethren who watch out for you. I agree. But you need to beware. Just read Revelation 2 and 3. Remember one time when I preached on this passage in Revelation 2. And I invite you to turn there, Revelation 2.18, one of the letters to the seven churches. I remember I was telling my people, this could happen to us. Listen to it, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. That is, that he sees. He sees everything. And he's fast to go and move, right? And he says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than, the, than at first. Wonderful. It is wonderful, but listen now. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of, their, of her deeds." And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now there is still hope in this, in the following verses. But I, I tell you, that was a church established under the nose of the apostles. So, when you think of all your privileges, use them well. Use them well and guard your heart. We must watch and pray. We must beware that we do not think. Also, again, here's another, here's another problem in the way people think. That only a few very serious sins require the deep humiliation of Psalm 51. No, there are a lot of sins which seem much less serious that require deep-seated repentance in the soul. For example, partiality. Now, 
James is, is pretty blunt about what partiality is like in a New Testament church. And he says, if you commit the sin of partiality, you're breaking God's law and you are convicted as transgressors. That requires repentance. Unforgiveness. The failure and resistance to forgive someone who has offended you among your brethren. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 25. He gives the parable of the, of the king whose uh, servant wouldn't forgive someone with a much less debt. And Jesus says he's going to be, he's going to be punished. He's going to be restricted. And so shall God do to you also, if everyone does not forgive his brother, the hard part now, from his heart. See, it's a very serious thing to hold a grudge and not to forgive from the heart. So what I tried to do in this first part of the sermon is tell you just how relevant Psalm 51 is. We can't hold it at a distance and say, well, that was David. Yeah, he deserved it. Yeah, he needed it, but not us. No, actually, it's not true. We do, we do need it. We need to watch and pray. And when we sin, we need that kind of profound and deep repentance that marked David. Well, that's, that's point number one, the wide relevance of Psalm 51. The second point, the underlying reality of these particular requests of David for cleansing in verses 2, 7, and 10. And it's what I'm calling the defilement of sin. The underlying reality is the defilement of sin. Notice how David expresses his need in the light of his sins back in Psalm 51. In the verses that I have underscored for you. David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purify me with hyssop, a, a picture from the Old Testament Levitical law. When the hyssop was used to sprinkle uh, water or blood or a mixture of water and blood upon the people to purify them, to make them ceremonially clean. And beneath David's words is a, is a, a sense of his need because of his sins. Every sin defiles the soul. Every sin makes the soul unclean. And it requires the grace of God in cleansing. David borrows this language from the ceremonial law about cleansing the garments, about someone who has touched a, a dead carcass or one many other things. And they render the person unfit for communion with God. They render them unfit for fellowship, close fellowship and worship. So they have to go outside, wash their clothes, and they're unclean till evening. And David says on a much greater scale, what's happened to me? Because I have sinned in this way, I am defiled. I am unclean. Sin, dear brethren, we, we have a way, we have a way of speaking about our sins and thinking about our sins which far fall short of what God says about our sins. You know, sin affects the whole man in all of his faculties. Sin affects all of your spiritual life. And the, and the sad thing is, you may not feel it. You may hide your mind and your heart from the effects of sin. But what sin does to you, it does. That's why David prays so he does. Wash me thoroughly. 
It leaves a deep stain, a deep effect. And he says, I need God to put me on the scrub board. Wash me from my sin. Cleanse me from my sins. It is a kind of a spiritual leprosy that invades the whole soul. Sin affects the heart. The emotional seat of the man at the center of his being, the way a man feels is the index of his spiritual vigor or lack thereof. Sin has effect upon the heart. The affections ought to be set on God. We, we sang about that in one of our hymns. I think it's the, it's the second one, God be merciful to me. The affections ought to be set on God. But when you have unconfessed sin, it hampers the emotions of the soul. You know, the Lord Jesus made this point with Peter by the Sea of Galilee, and I believe it's John 22, when Jesus asks the question three times, Peter, do you love me? Your conduct has been the contradiction of the love which is your due to me, your Savior. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That's what, that's what sin does. Sin defiles the soul in its faculties of love. Unless hypocrisy has gained a great deal of ground, as it sometimes does, the sinner cannot truly engage God in worship with delight and true reverence. Can you imagine what it must have been like for David to go into the temple or to go into the tabernacle at the time with the other believing Jews and engage in the worship of God? With that kind of a sin upon his soul, unconfessed and uncleansed, he could not delight in God. Defilement of sin, the defilement of sin affects the mind. Wisdom and discernment are hampered because the fear of the Lord, which David had cast behind his back, the beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, it's the ABC of wisdom. And David's faculties of, of understanding the mind and will of God were affected. Sin defiles the conscience. You'll read it in your New Testament about certain people that their conscience is defiled. Conscience condemns sin. That's what it does. That's the function of conscience. When you do something sinful, your conscience says, it should say, sin, you've been wrong, you've been unfaithful to God. But conscience is, a, is an interesting, interesting effect. It also causes the man to excuse himself. That's what Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, right? right? Every man's way is right in his own eyes. It's not that that's right. It's the way he views himself. Conscience wants approval. We want approval. So what do we do? We make up reasons why we had to do it. Reasons why it was right for us to do it. And that is the defiled conscience. And the seared conscience no longer does its job. A man who does, a man or a woman, who does these kinds of sins? He may see the sins of others. Pharisaic hypocrisy is very keen-eyed. And you distract, you see, you may distract your sense of your own sin by focusing on the sins of others. That's what happens with a defiled, compromised conscience. See when. Our conscience is defiled with sin. We seldom see ourselves as we should. So the, the mind, the heart, the will, the conscience. The will is defiled. 
And uh, this is why David seeks restoration. This is what the conscience, what the will ought to be preoccupied with. Restoration, confession. But a defiled will is bent on self-defense and self-justification. But these sinful shifts keep the soul from its proper endeavors. So, in summary, because of defilement, and this is what David is praying for, cleanse me, wash me with hyssop, restore my soul. Uh, because of this kind of a thing, David cannot enjoy communion with God, which is one of the greatest blessings of grace. And we can come here, sit in our place, listen to preludes, sing the hymns. The wonder of worship is engaged in communion with God when you can sing, hallelujah, what a savior. But if your conscience and your heart and your mind and your will are defiled with sin, that comes out hollow at best. So we need cleansing. We need this kind of cleansing that David <laughs> prays about for his sins. That's why Paul makes that, that uh, exhortation to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Having these promises, beloved, the promise of communion with God. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We need that kind of cleansing. David in verse 10 seeks a cleansing that reaches his innermost being. Look at verse 10 again. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's talking about his life at the very center of his being. And he's asking God, create a clean heart, a, a heart that is washed, a heart that has been purified, a heart where the defilement of sin has been removed, where the conscience now is clean and clear. Renew a steadfast spirit within me, a spirit that does not turn easily to sin. When the, when the heart and the mind and the will are compromised with the defilement of sin, it's easier to turn back to sin again. One of the great ways in which God keeps us from continuing in a path of sin is by granting us communion with him. But again, when the heart and the mind and the will are defiled, it's easier to enjoy sin, to go back for more rather than to go to God for cleansing. But this is what, by God's grace, David does. He wants a cleansing that restores the purity in his heart. He wants a steadfast spirit that will not turn back to more sin. Let me say, I know this is a little bit heavy. It may be a little bit painful. I, I hope it's as painful as it needs to be. But remember, David got what he asked for. By grace, by grace alone. But David did get it. It's inconceivable that David should pen this psalm and give it to the choir director for the public worship of the people of God. And then David, David doesn't know anything about this cleansing, anything about this restoration. No, he does. And that is why God, by the Holy Spirit, causes David to pen this psalm. Because David has been given these blessings from God that he has been praying for. And here is the sweet side of it, if I may say so. This psalm ought to be an assurance that the grace David pleads for may be received from God by us. These are good 
prayers to pray, earnestly, perseveringly to God. And that leads me to my last point this evening. We have looked at the wide relevance of this psalm. It's for all kinds of people, all kinds of sins. And we've looked at the underlying reality of David's request, which is the defilement of sin. Now, the third thing we want to consider this evening is the fountain open, the or the open fountain is the way my notes have it, the open fountain. When our souls are defiled with sin, God must intervene when our souls are defiled. And this is what God does when he really loves his people. When his people know him and they walk in disobedience, God calls us back. He often uses his servant. One of the wonderful duties of pastors, as well as one of the difficult duties of pastors, is to call people back from their sins, to be a Nathan, and to do whatever it takes to help us see our sins. I remember a painful period in my life when my soul was greatly broken down with sin and I was talking to one of my pastors about it. My pastors were dealing faithfully with me. And as we talked and I, I told him my stupid excuses, my pastor said, he has the blinders on. And what the blinders are, that's what they put on the horse so that he can't see properly. He's, he's shut up to one way. And I, the sinner was shut up to self-justifications and blindness. But when God loves his people, he doesn't abandon them. He will pain them. He will convict them. He will bring them through great sorrows. He often uses his servant. One of my sheep in another church used to say when I would try to be faithful to him and his wife. We don't like it, but we love it. It was true. He was a true man. Sometimes he uses a servant. Sometimes he uses a saint. A saint sometimes a brother or a sister. Someone close enough to us to see us and get past our defenses. Sometimes God uses someone in our eyes very much more humble than we are to say to us just the thing we need to hear. So you must be ready to receive reproofs from people who you may say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm bigger than, th than them. Don't, don't think that way. Receive it. From the lowliest of saints, we have we have many uh, examples of this work of God in the Scriptures. I'm not going to go through them. Here's where I want to part for the remainder of our time. We have the assurances of forgiveness and renewal. Sin is very painful. Sin degrades us awfully. But because of the God of grace, we have forgiveness with God. We have the promise that after decay, there is renewal. God even promised that to Israel, remember. Remember at the end of Moses' life, he's rehearsing what he expects to happen to Israel. And he tells them, you're going to sin against God. You're going to, you're going to consort with the idols of Canaan. And God's going to bring you out and God's going to eject you far from your home into a foreign land where you'll have to be subject to the disgusting idols of the nations. But he says, God will bring you back. 
That was a promise to Israel. And God makes many such promises to the people of God. I hope I exhort you to think carefully about this. Maybe, maybe, I don't know why exactly God put this on my heart. Don't know why. It may be that someone here really needs just this word. Don't take God's promises of forgiveness lightly. Take them to heart. Think this way with me. I have a God who has brought me into fellowship with him through his son. He's rescued me from the domain of darkness and transferred me into the kingdom of his beloved son. He has not done this to abandon me, to leave me, to drop me into hell. He has done this for me that I might taste all of his rich grace. He promises forgiveness. God makes us his penitent people I just have two passages I want to bring to your mind. One I'll just quote. It's very familiar. It's that passage in 1 John 1, 7. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think about it. Your sin and my sin sullies my soul. It blinds my mind. It ruins my conscience. It eats the vitals out of my spiritual life. But God says what he wants me to do is confess my sin. You know what that means. Say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. Confess your sins. I have sinned. It's not my brother's fault. It's not my sister's fault. It's not my husband's fault. It's not my wife's fault. It's my sin. You notice how David does that in Psalm 51. I've sinned. He doesn't even mention Bathsheba. He doesn't mention anybody. I've sinned. It's my sin. And that's what we do when we confess our sins. And God, since he has made promises to his people to forgive them their sins, he is faithful and righteous. God in righteousness forgives the sins of his people. So it perfectly complies with his holiness. And he cleanses us. Cleanses us. That's what David wants. Cleansing. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's, that's one text for us that ought to make us happy. Or to make us rejoice, we ought to go to God with our confession, fast and thorough, and rejoice in the promised mercies of God. But I want to turn you to one more text, one last text. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. The writer is making the contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The sacrifices of the Old Testament are inferior to the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our priest, is superior to the Old Testament priests whose ministrations had very limited, very limited effects. But this one thing they did, they enlightened David's conscience. David could look at the Old Testament institutions and say, I understand that those sacrifices in and of themselves cannot cleanse my sins. This is what the writer to Hebrews says. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But David saw the picture of forgiveness and the necessity of blood sacrifice. But now in Hebrews chapter 9, Starting with verse 11, 
He does the Christ side of this comparison. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater room of perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. He's gone into heaven. And now the only place where his ministry can effectively forgive us and cleanse us is in heaven. And that's where he is. That's where he ministers. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus Christ is in heaven to retain, to obtain for us the benefits of his salvation, which is the cleansing of our sins. Now the writer makes an argument from the least effective kind of sacrifice to the most effective in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. You see, it had a very limited effect. What did, what did it do? It prevented God's wrath from breaking out and killing them immediately. It cleansed them externally so that they could engage in limited worship of God. But our Savior is in heaven with a perfect sacrifice. And that's verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, there's our perfect sacrifice, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And to serve the living God is when we engage in corporate worship. When we come, having confessed our sins, applied to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and been cleansed by his blood, now we are ready to really worship God. Because that's what the blood of Jesus does for us in heaven. We confess our sins. He cleanses us. I don't know exactly how it works. It's one of the things I hope I'll learn in heaven. How does the blood of Christ and as I confess, how does it work? I don't know, but it does work. And it cleanses the conscience and makes me fit to worship God. Able to worship God. And dear brethren, that is why Psalm 51 ought to make our hearts rejoice. Because it really affects the restoration of the soul of the people of God. And it doesn't take years it doesn't take months. It doesn't take days when we confess our sins are forgiven. Our souls are cleansed and restored. So I'll ask two questions. Are you rejoicing in the joy of sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ? It ought to be one of the things that makes us as happy as can be. I'm going to be very happy when June Duana leaves the facility and gets in my car and goes to my home. It's going to be a happy, happy day. But it won't be happier than knowing that my sins are forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you happy? to be a forgiven sinner by the blood of Christ? And if not, that's my second question. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you in your fight against sin? Are you seeing your sins for what they are and how much damage they do to you and your church and to the uh, glory of your Savior? Where are you? Where are you? May God grant that you are rejoicing before the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Let's pray. Amen. Our Father, how thankful we are that in your mercy and pity to us you have given us the Holy Scriptures to enliven our faith, to teach us your ways, and to bless us with the things that you have promised through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray 
that you would help us all, help us all, Lord, to see our sins for what they are and to hate them and to confess them in order that you may restore us and use us for your glory. Please use the things that you have revealed to us this night and bless us by your grace, undeserving as we are. We bow before you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.